forever. Dog. Just between us. Hey. Just between us. Hey. Hello. I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and as of late, I have zero energy for social interactions. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and a man of mystery, baby. Oh, what kind of mysteries? British period pieces? <laughs> um, as I walked off, I heard you guys say that I'm a man, a man of mystery or something, so. Oh, yeah, I did say that you're mysterious, always have been, always will be. I like that. Thank you. What's going on? Why can't you? You don't want to be social? Yeah. (laughs) I just don't have the energy for it. Like the idea of having to see somebody is so overwhelming. (laughs) Where I'm like, I've got to really space it out. Oh, man. I'm getting lunch with a a new friend on Saturday. And then another friend had asked if I could see them. And I was like, I can't see two people in one day. Yeah. I mean, were you this way the whole pandemic or no? (laughs) No, it's more recent. Is it um, the hopelessness of the continued Omicron situation that's really got you feeling as though you don't have the mental capacity for more than one person? I think I'm coming off of an overwhelmed phase. And I think maybe I'll be back to myself soon. But for right now, I really, it's too much for me and I'm having to cancel things. I think that that is totally fine. Canceling things is great. Knowing when you're overwhelmed is great. Not pushing yourself to do more than you want to do is great. Sometimes people go, oh, I only did one thing today. I was so unproductive. And it's like, no, if you showered, if you did one thing today, like, good for you. Lay down. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm in this, like, weird phase where I have so much I have to do coming up, but I can't quite do it all yet. You know, like, between, like, school work Mm -hmm. and writing my new next book and just all these different projects. Mm -hmm. and, And, like, I'm trying to, like, be, like, take this time before the storm to like recharge, even though I'm like, part of me is like, or get ahead, get ahead, write that research paper that you don't know how to write yet. Yes, totally. (laughs) Absolutely. And it's hard to enjoy the calm before the storm when you know the storm is coming. Yeah. To me, I'll be like, I wish that (laughs) this is weird, but I'll be like, I wish that the hours I had today, I could just save them and have them for next week. (laughs) Right? These hours I don't need. But next week, oh boy, am I going to need them. I wish I could roll them over. But my therapist was like, I was talking to her about everything going on. She was like, yeah, it really seems like what you need right now is self-care. So if you could just take some time, you should really do that. And I was like, thank you for validating this. Mm -hmm. I know we're supposed to be working on my contamination OCD, (laughs) but instead I'm just going to self-care the shit out of myself. A good therapist is like Mal and I like our couples therapist now. Oh, good, because you did it like the other one, yeah, right? Yeah, we love this one now. What is the difference? Why do you like them? She gives us homework. Like what? Can <laughs> you tell me like what? <gasps> she told us to write down our core values and traits. And then mm. we had to compare them. And then we had to see which ones were in opposition and which ones were complementary. And it was a really good exercise if anyone wants to steal that. Will you tell me what orientation your therapist is? And if you don't know, will you please ask and then report back? Yeah, I'll find out. It was great because you could just take what I was writing, what Mal was writing, and you could draw lines to them and be like, okay, we both wrote down this. Amazing. We wrote down these two, which are in opposition, but don't have to be because here's how we make them not in opposition. What? Which ones were in opposition to begin with? Can you think of an example? 
one of my core ones was freedom. Mm. And one of Mal's core ones was loyalty. And in some ways, those are in opposition because I want to do what I want all the time whenever I want to. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Mal wants, like, you to swear your fidelity on their sword. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, yeah. Not even having to do with monogamy and just like the a way of being. But then it's fun because then we both wrote down ambition. We both wrote down creativity. So that was like super nice. But yeah, then we had to figure out. She said, when you argue, take the try to go back to these four, these five traits and figure out which two are in opposition at this current moment. I love that. And then know that it's about those two things and not about what you're arguing about. Wow. I know. Brain explosion. Full brain explosion from this woman. I have to say, a lot of times couples therapy, the techniques in couples therapy are like so much more clear to me Mm -hmm. than individual therapy from school. Like where I'm like, oh, I actually understand how you would implement this in therapy in a way that like is a little trickier with some individual therapy methods. This seems very implementable. Yes. Yeah. And great. Oh, I love that for you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Well, this is Just Between Us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. This week, we're going to be asking screenwriter Kiwi Smith some tough questions about why 10 Things I Hate About You and Legally Blonde were so universally loved. What is the special sauce? What is it like to have such a big impact on culture? Kiwi is an icon, a legend, and a genius. We're obsessed with her, and she's incredible. (laughs) Later, we're going to be discussing celebrity deaths, of which there have been so many. I know. That's why I picked it. I know. My neighbor Dita has a lot of thoughts on it, too. I wish we could get her over here. But anyway, uh, she knew Betty White. (laughs) What? Wow. Melissa's face, just pure shock. (laughs) Anyway. But first, we have got to answer a listener's question. And you know what that means. Hit it! International question! International question! International question! Anonymous, New Jersey. Do you know that I have dated not one, not two, but three people from New Jersey? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Okay. Here we go. TLDR. I love, I love this TLDR. How do I grieve the fact that I will live with anxiety forever? Anonymous writes, I love your show and I've been watching you both since the BuzzFeed days. I'm 20 years old, diagnosed with an anxiety disorder at age 13, and have been on Zoloft since age 15. Since the start of my anxiety journey, I've experienced a cycle where I'm anxious, the anxiety goes away, I feel guilty, I get frustrated and mad at myself, and then feel defeated and think, what's the point in trying with it all? The cycle has changed slightly over the years, and there's always variations. For instance, maybe I don't feel guilty, but just skip to being frustrated, and differences in severity of the feeling. But without fail, the cycle always repeats itself. CBT has helped me in the beginning to live with symptoms and achieve some level of acceptance. But I went back to therapy, psychodynamic, at the start of college because I felt that I shouldn't accept living with this cycle if it can be broken. Guilt happens more when my anxiety has impacted others, but the frustration of having worked so hard to live with this for seven years always occurs. Additionally, the defeated stage always comes with a level of grief, since I know that I will always likely live with anxiety in some capacity. Mm. Essentially, my question is, how do I grieve this fact in a healthy way that will help me break the cycle? I know rationally things are not black or white, but I often shift into an all or nothing mindset and wonder if my inner frustration would go away if I basically give up trying for a bit. 
Again, I know this is a pessimistic way of thinking and probably not conductive, but I feel so stuck. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this, if either of you have ever dealt with cycles like mine, and if you have any tips for grieving the fact that you will live with certain things forever. And yes, if it wasn't completely obvious, I'm writing this in a defeated stage. Thank you so much for everything you do and keep being you. Wow, this was really beautifully written. Mm -hmm. Yeah, obviously, you know that you're being really hard on yourself. And I think you're really being hard on yourself because part of me thinks you're like imagining that there is one healthy way to be that you're somehow failing at being a person. I mean, you are personally unhappy, but you're adding to it then the shame of like, why can't I just function in a way that is a standard that I don't think anybody (laughs) is actually meeting. So I do very much understand as someone with bipolar disorder, the shame on top as a hat on top of the mental illness and like that causing the spiral of feeling bad then about not being able to control something. But like if you were diabetic, you could manage the symptoms, but you would still be diabetic. Like I think we are much harder on ourselves about mental health stuff being something lifelong than than anything else. Yeah, I really gravitated towards this question because I had like this like weird realization lately. You know, with my mental health journey, I'm doing so much better now and I have been for a few years. And so it's a really interesting thing because sometimes I think, oh, I'm fine. You know? right, and then I'll right. have this moment where I'll be like, I am still struggling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like anxiety is still a big part of my life. My compulsions are still a big part of my life having OCD and that's still there. And it was almost like this moment where I was like, oh, I'm still mentally ill. (laughs) Yeah, there's no like fixing you. There's no like cure. And it's this interesting thing because I'm doing so much better. But then to realize like, oh, my brain is still not, you know, what people's brains are like who don't have anxiety or who don't have OCD, even though maybe... Maybe if you knew me now, you wouldn't necessarily know unless I told you. Probably not. I'm sure you would. But like, and so I basically had that exact moment recently where I was like, oh, this is still part of mm-hmm. me, despite all of the work that I've done, despite all of the growth that I've had. And, you know, I think it really comes down to, but it's a part of me in a different way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that that's the thing to kind of keep in mind. As you grow and change, yes, your anxiety might still be there, but you will probably have a different relationship with it. It will probably impact your life in different ways. It might not be as distressing because you will have had more experiences of coming off of it. Mm -hmm. You know, so like I had a flare up in anxiety a couple of weeks ago and I noticed it and was like, oh, this is interesting. Oh, wait, I have a lot going on. It makes sense. I'm having this flare up. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, with bipolar disorder too, like Allison's telling the truth, you get more used to it. Like, I'll just be like, okay, I need to put myself to bed. Like, Mm -hmm. I'll just be like, oh, you know, I could spiral out about this or I could just go, well, this is something that I have. It's not going away, but the way that I handle it and my relationship to it can change. And instead of the shame spirals that I would go down, I would just be like, okay, you're aware and now you have to stop the train. Yeah. And I think there's also a lot of validity to being annoyed that you have to live this way, right? Oh, it's so frustrating. It's so unfair. I constantly am like, this is unfair. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to like honor that and hold space for that. And then also 
keep going. You know, like I think you are right in that you are really holding on to all or nothing thinking and thinking that this cycle is quote unquote forever. Your anxiety can be forever without it being the same cycle forever. And you won't be the same forever. And you won't be the same. It's just getting into the groove of the ebbs and flows, right? It's almost like weirdly like riding a horse. (laughs) I was going to say riding a kayak. Yeah, like riding a horse is always bumpy. But if you get better at riding a horse, you move with the horse a bit more, you know? Yeah, with the waves, Um, baby. Exactly. And so... You know, at 20, and I I hate to do this, I hate to say your age is is a factor, but like your age is a factor as you get older and as your brain matures a bit more, you know, I think maybe in your mid to late 20s, I think your relationship with anxiety might, might really shift in a lot of ways. Also, it's really hard when you have anxiety and you're also trying to figure out who you are. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, so when you're younger and dealing with anxiety... You're also dealing with a lot of like, who am I? Does anybody like me? Am I a, a terrible person? Am I am I becoming what kind of life am I building for yourself myself? Like what there's all these big things that are also happening that are that your anxiety is going to be like, ooh, I can latch on to this. And so there is something about once you kind of become more of an adult and more clear on who you are and things like friend groups and your clothes and the way you appear to other people sort of matter less, your anxiety in a way has like less tangible things to latch onto. And instead it can become just more like a feeling in your body Mm -hmm. that you can just identify as a feeling in your body and not give as much power to. Also, in terms of thinking that things are unfair, like I used to be really rageful when I was younger and say, this is unfair. I'm the only one who like can't do the same things as other people. And, you know, why can't I do this or whatever? And um, extending empathy to other people and realizing like people don't know the extent of my struggles. Like I don't know the extent of theirs. And like it seems unfair because everybody is putting their best self forward and it might not actually be true. And like the feelings of frustration and grief like for me it was grieving something that wasn't even real like I was like look at all these other teenagers out there having so much fun and it's like they weren't (laughs) (laughs) you know or like well everybody can just go and and work 24 hours a day and I have to rest or else I go manic and it's like that's not really true Allison's right like taking time to see the world around you for what it actually is will help maybe figure out your place in it and what is healthy for you. Yeah. And it's holding two things at once, right? It's saying it sucks that I have this Mm -hmm. and I can still live my life. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, it's like being like, these are two truths. Like I can still have a rich full life and it also sucks that I have this. Mm -hmm. And letting yourself have the hope that, like we've said, that that your relationship with it will inevitably change. And part of that change will come easier and faster if you just accept that that change will happen. Yeah. You know, so I know that it's hard to feel that way. And especially because, you know, in 20 years, you've been dealing this with for seven of them. And, mm-hmm, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, that's a significant portion. Right. <laughs> but just knowing that you don't know what you will look like tomorrow. You don't know what your anxiety will be and feel like, but that you are getting to know yourself better every single day. And that if you commit to managing your symptoms and commit to a life that is full with anxiety, Mm -hmm. then those things are like absolutely achievable. 
Yeah. And the grief is real. Don't push it aside. Mm-hmm. I really tell that a lot. The grief is very real alongside the frustration. And it's it's very much friends with the this is not fair. So yeah, <laughs> don't push it aside. But it's maybe feels like the end of the world right now and isn't. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard, right? Because it's like, part of me is like, what would have happened if I didn't get OCD at age four? Mm-hmm. And then, but I like don't even let myself go down that road because I'm like, I don't even know who that person is. Mm-hmm. It's been a part of me for so long. It's shaped so much of me. Mm-hmm. Look, I think I'd be really cool. <laughs> but <laughs> but if I didn't have bipolar disorder, my, my neighbor said, oh, you have bipolar disorder. I said, yes. And she said, well, you know, many great artists have bipolar disorder and are gay. And I said, thank you, Dita. <laughs> so who knows what I would be without it? Like, that's like anything, right? Yeah. Like, because it feels like such a tangible hypothetical, but it's also like, what if I was born a princess? What if I was born in another country? What if I, you know, like, it doesn't really serve you to to go down that road, or at least it hasn't served me. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So we're sending love. We uh, We understand exactly what you are feeling. But I think the biggest thing is that while the anxiety might not go away, the way it manifests, the way you manage it, your relationship to it can change and, and most likely it will. Yes, definitely. We validate you. If you want to submit your international question, send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guest, Kiwi Smith. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Top questions. This week on the show, we have Kiwi Smith, an American screenwriter and novelist whose credits include Legally Blonde, 10 Things I Hate About You, and She's the Man. She's written most of her screenplays with her screenwriting partner, Karen McCullough. Oh my God, hello to the icon and legend, Kiwi Smith. (laughs) Hello. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks, guys. Oh, thank you for coming. Um, Allison has so much to say about your work. (laughs) I mean, it's just so incredible. Like Abby and I are obviously both writers and creators. And I think something that we've always talked about is like, how do you get to be a part of like popular culture? You know, like, how do you like make it impact? And you have made an impact with so many of your projects where you have like influenced everybody, (laughs) like even people who haven't seen Legally Blonde are probably quoting Legally Blonde. And so what has that been like for you personally to have such an impact on like American culture? Oh, well, that's a huge compliment. Thank you so much. You know, I guess it really, it's only kind of dawned on me, I guess, in this past, I don't know, maybe four or five years, I guess it feels like. And it's been really rewarding, A, because I don't have children. So these movies are like my baby girls, you know, and then also I feel like it was, there was a really kind of weird period in my writing career and in Hollywood where they kind of stopped making a lot of female-driven comedies between 2010 and 2020. So to have the renaissance and have the support of young people, millennials, young women, and, and have the movies really resonate with them has been exciting because it's like, oh, these things that we wrote so long ago, I mean, some some like 20 years ago now, actually matter to people and are still like in the conversation and relevant in a way. And it's it's exciting. It feels like when your kid goes off to college and does great things. <laughs> 
I will put my life on the line to say 10 things I hate about you is probably like the best teen comedy aside from my one weird movie that I like that nobody's seen. What's that? What's your one weird movie that you like that nobody's seen? Get Over It. I love Get Over It. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The director of it is Tommy O'Haver and he hired us to do some work on Ella Enchanted, which was his movie after Get Over It. And I mean, I maintain Get Over It has probably the best opening credit sequence of any, or opening 10 minutes of any teen movie, really. That whole musical, like, walk and talk thing is phenomenal. Oh, it's so fun. And and I think that that's something that, like, we've lost in a lot of movies is just like the f- the fun of it all. Yeah. When you were writing these seminal films, like, did you know that that they were going to be as big as they were? Or like, when did that start to dawn on you? Yeah, no clue. No clue. <laughs> I just felt like, I mean, I was really inspired by a lot of, you know, the 80s teen movies and some kind of weird deep cut ones myself. Like, I love Just One of the Guys which was like a movie in the 80s. And I loved, you know, Girls Just Want to Have Fun and with Sarah Jessica Parker and Helen Hunt in it. And I loved um, this movie, Modern Girls, which was like a 20-something girl movie. I don't, I just felt like I wanted to see more of those films. Those were the ones that mattered to me most. I mean, I worked in a video store when I was in high school, back when VHS was like really a thing. And and it was a dream job because I just got to watch movies all the time and discover all these great movies. And I wanted to tell those kinds of stories. So I guess when we were writing them and coming up with those ideas, it was mostly a selfish pursuit of what are we dying to see? What can we write? What do we love? You know, and we really loved teen comedy. So that's why we set out to write 10 Things I Hate About You. And and also we recognized that there was a couple of moments where like classic literature was being adapted into a modern teen format. Like, you know, Emma became clueless and Romeo and Juliet was just about to come out. So it was like, how can we adapt a classic and make, you know, a great, a great story, but set it in this new world. So that was kind of our inspiration for that. But yeah, no, no clue that we were writing anything that would be called, as you love generously call it a, some kind of a, lasting classic film. I mean, we were just like, we want to we want to write movies that we want to see. Is there like an uphill battle where you know that this is like funny and good and the studio at the time is like, what is this? Sometimes there are battles. I mean, usually it's like things within scenes or jokes within scenes. I mean, it's such a collaborative effort. You know, it takes hundreds of people to make a film. So it, it does have to kind of land for multiple people that are reading it, the producer studios Mm -hmm. agent. And I don't know about agents or managers, but yeah, in a partnership, at least you have that idea that you're bouncing it off of someone that you trust. And in the case of my writing partner, she and I are complete opposites. So really, if we agree on a joke or both giggle when it's when we're saying it to the other it feels like okay that works (laughs) (laughs) are there any favorites that got cut or that you're like oh man I wish this was still in something oh yes I mean I feel like in 10 things we had a lot of really good scenes or several good scenes with Kat and Mandela that were left on the cutting room floor, like scenes of them eating Thai food together and yeah it was sort of like the that female friendship relationship felt like a 
lower on the list of priorities, mm-hmm. maybe to what some of the other storylines were. I feel like, yes, let me, I want to think more about this question. I should have been prepared for it because I'm <laughs> No, all, no, that's okay. It's littered with, I mean, there's so many times too, just in script form where you have to cut things that you totally love. And then I just try to blank out. Otherwise I, I would be the most bitter, sad person. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think that high school is such a rich environment to set stories in? I mean, it's so juicy, right? Like there's all this romance and there's all these like formative friendships, you know, like I just remember best friends being such an important thing. Like who's your best friend and who's hooking up with who and who likes who. And it's just so filled with like yearning and desire. And and then also power is such mm. a thing in, in school and acceptance and insecurity. And, you know, everything feels like so huge and so high stakes. So I think that's another thing is like, we all, we all know that a simple thing like a dance or a school play or or like getting to play in a game or a, like someone liking you back, that feels like the most high stakes thing in the world. Whereas in an adult movie, those would be like, we need ticking clocks and bombs that make the world explode. But in high school, you can just have feelings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always think it's like, you know, this is their first time experiencing a lot of life. So everything feels life yes. or death for a high schooler. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so it's like built-in huge stakes. Yeah. And why do you think that this kind of movie went away the way you mentioned from like 2010 to 2020? I, I don't know. I mean, I think probably because we were experiencing the rise of like these big, huge tentpole movies. I mean, they started in with Jaws in the 70s and such, but it just it just felt like everything was moving toward more towards that, like a big quote unquote four quadrant movie where it's not enough to make a movie that women or young or old would go see the movie or people interested in those kinds of stories. They, it, they wanted to have like, huge, you know, it was sort of the Michael Bayization of Hollywood kind of, it, you know, uh, it, everything had to be big. And there was a lot of courting of a male audience too, like a kind of conventional young boy, fanboy audience felt like it was, it was starting and it was like, they were horror was becoming a big thing. So it was just, it felt like, oh, if we're going to make m- movies for women, let's make horror movies because women like horror movies. It just seemed like it just became a really rare, like weirdly gendered thing somehow. Like, let's make movies more for these people and not these people, mm-hmm. meaning girls. Which is kind of funny because it's, it's a narrowing of the audience in a way because like you were talking about, you know, movies for women. I would argue that your movies are also for gay men. Yes, <laughs> like, right. Nobody loves Legally Blonde more than a gay man. Like the idea that these are, you know, movies for women is, I mean, she's the man I was saying to Allison is like a trans iconic like movie. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I love that. I'm so proud that it is. And I'm so pleased that it's like for the most part been able to kind of hold up okay and not be like this awful light or you know neither yeah. neither Karen nor I are are trans so it's just like we were writing from this place of yeah I'm happy that it's held up in that way thank you no of course but it's just like it seems so wild to say well these movies are for these people when it's really just the erasure of like any sort of marginalized audience it's really just like we don't care what women watch we don't care what gay people watch uh goodbye <laughs> yeah let's just have some straight white boy 
energy that that's what we're catering and building everything for. It was, it felt a little bit like that. I mean, I just remember when Bridesmaids was about to come out, every person interested in telling a a female, whether it's story about emotions and feelings and fish out of water comedies with a female presenting character, it was like, oh, you know, everything has to hinge on the success of Bridesmaids. If Bridesmaids fails, then we'll never be able to tell any of the stories we want to tell. And then Bridesmaids succeeded. And what really happened, it just seemed like, was Judd Apatow and Paul Feig, like the straight white guys got the credit for it. I mean, mm-hmm. Kristen and Annie did as well, but it didn't feel like there was an, an opening of the door for let's make oodles more of these movies, you know? Which is wild because the those existed prior. Like I'm, I'm trying to imagine like First Wives Club getting greenlit now. And like, it would be like, you know, such a thing where like at the, t- there were so many, Movies that were like, you know, specifically, I don't know, Julia Roberts's entire body of words. (laughs) Like, I don't understand. Like, maybe it's the Internet. I'm not really sure. I'm not sure either. I mean, maybe that's kind of what was going on in that time period. Yeah, that it just like got louder or something. I mean, like a lot of teen movies, maybe like post-American Pie, they became more like male-focused teen movies. Yeah, and that was, but that was also like at the beginning of the 80s, all the teen movies, the majority of them were really male-focused sex Mm -hmm. comedies, you know? So Mm -hmm. that the mid-80s, there started to be this dappling in of female-driven teen stories, like the ones I mentioned, like the John Hughes movies. It's also looking at who the gatekeepers of, who was greenlighting the films were, too. I mean, if I'm writing movies based on, things that I want to see, then they're greenlighting movies based on things that they want to see. So I feel like now we're getting a more expansive version of what people want to make and people want to see. Right. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. And we're back. I have a question in terms of like, your personal relationship with your work, you know, you have made huge hits, but I wonder, have you ever as a creator felt like, okay, I've done enough? Or do you still feel (laughs) that pull to like keep making new projects? Oh, I feel the pull. I mean, I'm, I feel a lot of pressure really because I, we had such a run in that kind of 2000 to 2010. I mean, it's pretty wild to look back and see how many movies we got made. And so now that's what I want again. I just want to have like great stories in the genre that I love get produced. So I'm hell bent on that. And I feel like, I mean, that's what I want to have happen. I just want to make at least one movie this year and then ideally another movie next year and ideally another movie the year after that. So yes, I feel like more pressure than ever and but more excitement than ever honestly because I feel like I lived through that like dark era where we were just meeting with the most obscure like fake financiers to like rewrite their crappy screenplays and all the like slumming that we had to do with all the really sketchy people and projects in that kind of decade that I mentioned and now I think there's just so much more appetite and enthusiasm for the kinds of movies that we want to make so I feel really excited like a renaissance almost. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, yes, I do. This is probably where the sexism of the industry comes in a bit and that you had this huge run, you had all these huge hits, and then you still had a decade where people wouldn't make your content. Yes. 
Yes. And I mean, what's interesting now is kind of sticking around long enough to be part of it, but I'm also older now. So I think there's, you know, there's a little bit of, of like exploring that thing too, of here's a writer that's like done all this stuff, but then she's not a millennial or, or Gen Z. So that's an interesting thing too. I think of myself as like very uh, young and emotionally stunted at heart. So <laughs> I'm, <laughs> it's, I'm not too stressed, but like when I turn 60, I feel like, I feel like that's when I don't want to be, I don't want to be like over 60, like pitching movies about teenagers. I think that would be weird. Yeah, I was going to say, how do you keep up? I'm literally Googling, like, what does Gen Z talk like? <laughs> like, you know, like on TikTok trying to be like, okay. Yeah, I think I have to get on TikTok. My friend Jessica Bendiker, who wrote Bring It On. Yes, um, yeah, we love yes, her. Yes, yes, we love her. Have you talked to her? Mm-hmm. Oh, she's the best. She's the best. She's so brilliant. And she's like my therapist and funniest, smartest person I know. But yeah, she's like, Kiwi, you got to get on TikTok. Like, stop <laughs> it. I don't know why. Stop messing around. Like, it's I time. love the idea of all the women <laughs> who wrote these, like, iconic movies that shaped millennials are just, like, hanging out with each other. <laughs> And getting on TikTok. (laughs) I know, like my fan fiction in my mind of like all of you guys hanging out. Oh my God. Oh, that's so funny. With Legally Blonde, because that's not a teen comedy. But with Legally Blonde, I mean, like, I feel like you tricked people into being feminist. (laughs) Can you talk talk about that a little bit? Well, I love that. And it's really interesting because my partner, Karen, and I, I was like a women's studies minor in college. So I loved the word feminism. I thought it was the coolest. And she was not that. She was like very allergic to the word. So I was always like, we're feminists. And she's like, I don't know. But I was like, you're strong, opinionated, you know, willful, hilarious. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. And we want to make as much money as the guys do. So obviously, dot we're feminists. And so I think that's just like naturally part of the combination of our energies. You know, we're Mm -hmm. both pretty undaunted people. So, yeah. And I think just the idea you know, it was based on an, an unpublished, at the time anyway, unpublished manuscript. And and the author gave us such a great framework of this premise and what's going to happen over the course of the story, an incredible gift of a story spine. So we had, you know, so much fun creating it. And it just seemed like more than anything, a funny, like seeing this very confident, you know, blonde sorority girl, like kind of careen into stuffy law school really felt just hilarious. And I mean, I love stories where women are just careening into places. Like I love What's Up Doc with Barbara Streisand. She, the opening yeah. shot is like she crosses the street and like do, do, do. And then like cars crash behind her. She doesn't even hear them. She keeps walking. I just love that kind of type of blithe spirit, confident woman. That's like, what, what's What's the problem? You know, <laughs> there's comedy in it. She's never the butt of the joke. Like and the ways that like she and, you know, Vivian subvert the tr- the thing and become friends. Like it's just like ahead of its time, I guess, in a way. It, it could very easily have been like the joke is on her. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that for me, but I take your word for it. Yeah. <laughs> no, like, well, if someone else had written it or, or if it had gotten noted to death or something. Right. It's interesting because you are queer and your work wasn't necessarily, I mean, obviously myself and gay men have just latched onto it. So we recognize something, but like the stuff wasn't explicitly 
that gay until more recently, right? Yeah, it wasn't really. Why did that change? In in terms of... Like your writing. Oh, I feel like there's always just like, I love girls, women, like I'm probably on the bi spectrum of everything. But yeah, I feel like I'm just love women and women's stories. And so I want to see the more romantic aspects of it as well being told. And I guess I just feel like it was in terms of like trinkets and things like yeah, that. Trinkets, or, yeah, trinkets. Yeah. It just seemed like the right move. And she just seemed like a character that in the novel that I wrote, she wasn't explicitly queer, but like she was always just like yearning to like be with these different girls. And it felt like this is just absolutely the way that we should evolve it is like have her be queer because it seems like it was already embedded in her to begin with. So let's just bring it out to the forefront. And that's what's been so encouraging too about like, you know, interacting with younger fans too, is it's like the openness of these generations. It's so exciting. It makes me want to be more open and tell more of myself, you know? Yeah. I just want to ask one more question before we move on to the game. And that's, do you feel, especially you kind of touched on this as you're getting older, do you feel like older women's stories are still really underserved? And is that something that you kind of want to explore more as as you age? Yeah, I I mean, I do. And it's interesting, though, because um, we've written a couple of like ensemble movies for like a great group of older lady actresses. And, you know, I think everybody now, though, is like, oh, older women don't want to see movies like this because they don't want to leave their house because they're scared to because of COVID. And I'm like, oh, no, because I feel like there's there was such a older women were the ones going to see a lot of these great like female comedies so I hope that we can get everybody back into the theater but yes I want to tell those stories whether it's like 50 something ladies or like you know 70 something ladies I don't know I feel like that's kind of exciting and fun to have like a sort of edgy biting older ladies so I want to write an ensemble and yeah have mix up like multi-generational type of stories too that aren't necessarily about like parents yeah Because there's something to be said about like what happens in that stage of life, especially like reclaiming yourself and when society sees you as like no longer important. Yes. Uh (laughs) 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 On that really cheerful note, would you like to play a game show? (laughs) Sure. What happens if I like panic about the questions? Can I say pass or next or buzz or? Uh, No, you must at least answer them. Okay, okay. This is forced play. Um, Okay. (laughs) So, but it's very, you can't really get it wrong because there are no right answers if that takes some of the pressure off. Okay. Um, There are no right answers. Not there are no wrong answers. There are no right answers. Very interesting. (laughs) Okay, go on. Uh, This game's called Hypotheticals. You and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask as many clarifying questions as you want. And then you tell me what you would do in that situation. And then I get to just decide whose answer I like. And sometimes I don't like any of the answers. So I really keep you guessing. Okay. You look horrified. I'm sorry. This is, could not be lower stakes. <laughs> Our first game is America's favorite game show. Would you stay with this cheater? You and your partner of five years have a precious three-year-old dog. One day, your dog goes missing, and you are both understandably distraught. Later that night, while you're out, so you're not home, 
A beautiful stranger shows up on your doorstep and your partner opens the door. The beautiful stranger has found your dog and is returning it. Your partner, so overcome with emotion and gratitude, embraces the beautiful stranger and starts making out with them. Would you stay with this cheater? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so um, whose house is it? You live together, but you are out. You're at therapy. Right. Okay. Oh, I'm at therapy? Yeah. That's nice. (laughs) Oh, well, is the partner making out with them because they said, here's the dog, but I'll only give it to you if you make out with me? That's a very good twist, but no, they they, <laughs> no, they just are really, really into the person. They're just so overcome in general. No, I, w- I mean, no, I don't think so. I think I would take the dog and run off into the sunset. Ah, I can't hear the words beautiful stranger without thinking of the Madonna song from Austin Powers. But I think I would stay because I love my dog so much. <laughs> I know. Maybe there's like a threesome that could unfold. Yeah, because what a mute cute, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love beans so much. Like, I don't know. I would do anything for beans. (laughs) You you would even force yourself to make out with a beautiful stranger? Yeah, I love him. (laughs) I just to clarify. Okay, so then I'm walking in to see beans is there. Well, Trudy in my case. Trudy is there. And then like my partner's making out with a beautiful stranger. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What a mix of emotions. I know. It really, really is. It really is. You guys need to write this script because it does seem like a great opening for something. Allison's really good at this stuff. <laughs> you are, Allison. Well done. If you ever want to collaborate, please let me know. <laughs> Allison's an excellent writer, full of ideas. I love it. Do you guys ever write together? We used to. Not anymore. You did? Yeah, but we used to back in the day. Back in back in the day. It didn't go great. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny, though, isn't it? It's like such a weird chemistry thing. I mean, and I love that you're I still know. really good friends because most of the time, it, I mean, many times, how, how does that happen? You know, it's hard. Yeah, it's hard to work together, especially screenwriting. It's definitely like a thing that either you want to do with someone or you want to do alone. And I've had other collaborators, too, where it just like also like just wasn't a fit. Yeah. Yeah. It took us a long time to to sort of figure out what boundaries and situations uh-huh. work for us. And it seems to just be podcasting. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yes. What would you do, though, if like an idea that you wanted to resurrect that was like kind of a half or like a script that was sort of in a messy state, but the idea was really good. You could go back. One could go to the other and say, I love to resurrect this idea and just give you co-story credit. Would you be cool with it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've done that with other people, too. Yeah, that's cool. Absolutely. Thanks for the hypothetical. (laughs) It wasn't as good as yours, though. Well, we still got two more. Here we go. Yes. Okay, okay. Our next hypothetical. Is this a date? You work for a food delivery service like Postmates. You go to drop off a large order and the client realizes that they overordered everything by accident. They then invite you in to eat some of the excess food. Is this a date? Stop. I love that. Oh, Kiwi, you love it? (laughs) I mean, I kind of do. I I actually, I think I've done that with a Postmates person before. Really? Do they think that... I mean, what? I've I, well, I've definitely invited like an Uber driver in for drinks. What? Kiwi, what? 
I know, I know, I know. But yeah, I was just enthusiastic and, and, and he was really nice and seemed like, I mean, he was just like a nice person and I, people were there and there was champagne. So I was just like, stay for a drink. And oh, so it wasn't one-on-one. It wasn't one-on-one. Yeah. I think the one-on-one probably might be a date. Right. Now I want to try this. I don't know if I'm, <laughs> should I try this? Should I, should I become a Postmates driver really quick to research or should I just try to invite someone in? Just invite people in. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I've given, like, uh, there's definitely been like, I, my sister exchanged numbers with an Uber driver and we were in the car one time, but then he never texted her. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> She's fine. She does really well. But yeah, right. she, uh, <laughs> it was quite a burn from that Uber yes. driver. <laughs> it does feel really sad. Like, what? Yeah, why didn't you text me? What happened? But you have to, in your mind, you have to go, their grandma died. You have to, like, think of something that doesn't have to do with you. Right, <laughs> right. So what is it? What's our final verdict? Date, like, the most romantic date of all time? Yeah, it's a date. No, I think it's just friendly. <laughs> I think it's generous. I wonder how many dates you've been on Kiwi that you didn't know were dates. My guess is in the dozens. Yeah, probably a lot. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah. Like, someone's like, I dated Kiwi Smith. And you're like, did we? <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't remember that, but okay. <laughs> okay, our final game. Are you a terrible parent? Your child recently turned 15, and you think they are old enough to start doing their own laundry. Unfortunately, your child hates doing laundry and starts to rewear smelly clothes instead of washing them. This leads them to getting rejected by their crush because they, quote, smell like armpits. (laughs) (laughs) Following this rejection, your child doesn't attempt to date again until they are 21. Are you a terrible parent? Yes, you suck. (laughs) You absolutely suck. I guess we need to factor in like, you know, some socioeconomic things. Maybe I don't I don't know if that factors into it. But yeah, if there's laundry available and the kid isn't doing it, they're a terrible parent. Also, the crush is hilarious. (laughs) The crush is so funny. That's a burn. We've had so many burns and that's another great one. Yeah, you're a terrible parent. (gasps) But you know what? I love the idea that the first time they go out is they're 21 and they go, they become a Postmates driver and then they get invited into someone's house for the date. Yay. And a redemption. You understand the world of the show. That's exactly (laughs) what happens. (laughs) so cute oh my god thank you so much for joining us where can people follow you find out about what you're up to and also literally watch everything you've ever written (laughs) they can follow me at kiwi loves you on twitter and instagram not yet on tiktok gonna try to work on coming soon Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> soon. And then they can watch Trinkets on Netflix. They can buy the young adult novels I've written on Amazon. Some are out of print, but you can get them for a penny. And you can buy Trinkets as a novel on Amazon. And then you can watch the movies on, I don't know, all the goody great platforms that we have that overwhelm our very existence. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. This is so much fun. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about celebrity deaths. Dum, dum, dum. <laughs> oh, God. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for Topics. X, 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 baby. 
baby. Joining us today is Melissa, our producer. Hi. Hello. So I, I picked a, a, a wonderful and timely subject, which is celebrity death. <sighs> We've had a lot of loss in the last couple of weeks. Betty White, Bob Saget, so many other people. And I guess what's I'm curious about is like, what do you think about this whole like public mourning aspect of it all, both for beloved celebrities and then for people that people hate? <laughs> so I'm curious about the people that celebrate when someone like Herman Cain, right, where he was like, mm-hmm. COVID isn't real. JK, I'm dead of COVID. I forgot that happened. That feels like it happened like 50 years oh, it ago. It happened 15 years ago. Yeah. But I felt a little uncomfortable about like celebrating that. Right. But I don't mind if people say the ways in which these celebrities like benefited their lives or helped their lives, as long as they're not like claiming to be friends with them or like claiming to have had like some sort of significant relationship that they did not have. Yeah. The moment I saw Betty White had died, I was devastated. That woman was elderly. I know. But the thing is, I think about her like every day. I don't know why, but she's been she's a big part of my childhood. Yeah. Like I would go tonight every night watching Golden Girls. I love Mary Tyler Moore, which she was yes. on as well. I also loved her show like Off Your Rocker, where they yes. were doing jokes and get, like yes. I I love her. I love her. I mean, I always said, like, when she died, I'd be devastated. And then yeah. there's, like, this part of me where I saw everybody posting about it. I was like, do I need to post this? Like, wh- why? Why do I need yeah. to post about this? I was supposed to do a live stream that day and we canceled it because I was just devastated about it. Aww. And so it's like, no, I didn't post anything, but still. And I don't think it makes me a bad person. But then it's like I, everyone else looking like. Why aren't people posting about this? I don't know. You don't have to be performative about it. I think it's weird when everybody's just like instantly posting something. It's like, do you actually care? Are you doing this because everyone else is doing it? Feel the same way about Robert Durst. You think about him every day. I'm such a fan. Had a bit of impact on your childhood. <laughs> I think about him every day. I mean, so sad that he died. Just kidding. What I think is like less clear cut is these celebrities who have like muddled pasts, right? Yeah. And so, like, do we call out that past? Do we not? Like, I does know. it matter? Like, if that's like what's really complicated. Yeah. I know. The thing with Kobe was really complicated. I don't know because I'm an apologist, right? I love David Bowie. And I know David Bowie died. And then a bunch of people were like, there's reports that he had sex with groupies who were underage. And I'm like, I know. And, like, I don't think that's good. It's not good. And every rocker, when they die, that's going to come up. That's going to come out. every single rock star had sex with underage people. I know. I know. Allegedly. Allegedly. That's why it's hard for me to be, a, like, a big fan of any, any person who's in the public eye because I'm suspicious of all of them. Even you, Tom Hanks. Yeah, I'm suspicious of everybody, I guess. But then I also... Like, I reference David Bowie in my writing and like I, you know, I'm working on a novel and one of the characters references the song Billie Jean, which is by Michael Jackson. And I'm like, should I take that out? You know, it's a good song. I don't know. Like, and then when Michael Jackson died, right? It's funny now because I feel like at the time people were so 
calling out everything and people were so upset when he passed. I remember I was in I was in um I was in a restaurant on Christopher Street in New York when I found out. Isn't it weird how you know exactly where you were? I know exactly where I, I was. I know exactly where I was. I was at work. We were actually yeah. Michael Jackson was actually on the radio playing and <gasps> then it came over the radio station. That night I went to C, which is a Thai food restaurant slash bar in Brooklyn, and they played all Michael Jackson songs and I got really drunk. But now I'll, I follow a lot of like accounts on Instagram that are like old school cool or like retro. And they'll post a picture of Michael Jackson and the, all the comments are positive. Mm-hmm. Everyone is like the king, like, re, you know, rested, whatever. So it's interesting to watch the evolution of it. Like, you know, and, and there's there's murals of Kobe in L.A. And like it's like the person versus the iconography of the person. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's also interesting because often grief is so personal and like you have to go about your daily life having experienced this huge loss and nobody knows or cares. But then when the celebrity dies, it feels like a communal experience. Yeah. Which is unique. Yeah. I get it because people they've contributed to your lives. But I also think it's strange when a celebrity dies in a car accident or plane crash with other people <laughs> and yeah. then like mm. nobody cares i used to say i was ne- i would never fly my ex who was well known i was like i'm never going to fly anywhere with you because if we crash your name's in the headline and who the fuck am i <laughs> like i need to be the most famous person dead in this flight oh gosh what's really upsetting about that is that's not the first time i've heard you say that i feel like i've heard it too <laughs> that's how i feel So, yeah, I just feel like it's this thing of just having it be how they touched you. Maybe not the good choice of words. Fine. Touch (laughs) your life, whatever. But I think, like, the idea of of grieving publicly is, like, so you don't feel alone. Like, everyone going to the Golden Girls' house and leaving flowers or something. You know what I mean? Like, there's, like, a communal everybody understands how I'm feeling. There's also something so sad to me that we only celebrate people once they die. And they oh, don't I hate to it. Be a part of it. Yes, <laughs> and I don't know if you've been watching, but this latest episode, this latest season of Curb, Albert Brooks has a funeral while he's alive. I want to do that too. Right? Like the way he did it in the show is like kind of ridiculous because he like wasn't there and watching video and made everyone dress in black and like all this, you know. But like I think like there is something to like why don't we celebrate people when they're alive? <laughs> you know, like but with Betty. White I think we did right everybody was like Betty White I think Betty White was celebrated every day yeah that's what was really cool about her and like I wish we extended that to more people yeah the fans of these people do I think I mean you know it's only when I think the person is like kind of underrated or treated like shit and then we change our minds like I will never forgive anyone for Amy Winehouse like the ways in which like these people are treated like garbage like I even think that Britney Spears could have gone that way if she had passed like the the ways in which we mock and treat people like garbage and then they die and we're like and now like Amy Winehouse is like lifted up to being an icon and it's like, you you all talk shit about her. Yeah, I was really sad about Amy Winehouse, too, because I kind of, like, found her when, like, she wasn't famous at all. And so I had been following mm-hmm. her career for a minute. And then it pissed me off how people, like, they were, one, making fun of it, or yep. two, saying all these, like, you know, promoting her to an icon. And I was that made me angry as well. Like, I see it a lot with particularly, like, Black musicians or performers from 
before they were properly credited or before, mm. you know, like it, you, you'll be like, oh, my God, this person wrote so many songs that I love. And it's like, <laughs> no, we're not talking about this till they till they die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we should treat the people that you like the way that we treated Betty White while she lived. I don't know. It's it's complicated, except, of course, for Robert Durst, who I love and never did anything wrong. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> this is a joke. Everyone listening, this is a joke. That man is horrible. What do we rate this episode? I'll give it 30 out of 20 bad jokes. Whatever. <laughs> Look, I'm here to bring the spice and the edge and the cancellation, I guess. I, I rate it. I rate it 11 out of 10 things I hate about you. Oh, oh that's very good. That was great. That's very Excellent. good. You've redeemed yourself. Woo! It's a real, it's a real roller coaster with me. You never know what you're going to get. <sighs> I'll do 76 out of 54 anxieties. Oh, no. Yeah. I don't know. Kind of a bummer. Kind of a bummer. But wanted to acknowledge the international question. Well, thank you so much to Kiwi Smith for being our guest. Just Between Us is a Forever Dog production hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Produced by Melissa D. Mont. Edited by Coco Lorenz. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Brendan Burns composed our killer theme music. To listen to this podcast ad-free, sign up for Forever Dog Plus at foreverdogpodcast.com slash plus. And check out video clips of our podcast on YouTube at youtube.com slash foreverdogteam or on our channel, youtube.com slash justbetweenusshow. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forever Dog Team to keep up with all the latest Forever Dog news. Also, at Allison Raskin, at Gabby Road, and at SheIsNotMelissa on Instagram. Bye! Forever! Yeah.